Welcome to another episode of The Every Lawyer on Mental Health in the Legal Profession. I'm Julia Tetrault-Provencher. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Our guest today is Justice George R. Strathy, recently retired Chief Justice of Ontario. October 2022 saw the release of the first ever comprehensive national study on the psychological health determinants of legal professionals. It's such a long title. <laughs> Sponsored by the Canadian Bar Association and the Federation of Law Societies. Baroness Hale talks about imposter syndrome in her memoir. Justice Strathy, you published an article. It's called The Litigator and Mental health earlier this year. The pandemic is clearly a major factor and mental health is one of the key issues of our time in our profession. I had the pleasure to read your article and I must say, uh, and, and you saw when I sent you my first email, I was very amazed because I really liked what you were saying in that article and I very much invite also our listeners to read it. So uh, Justice Strathy, welcome. Uh, welcome to our podcast. It's an honor to have you here with us today. Uh, we're very glad. So how are you? I'm well, Julia. Thank you so much for inviting me to to join you today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. So let's jump in right away. Has a discussion on mental health in the legal profession been overdue for a long time? Do you think it's something that should have happened Before. The, the short answer to your question is yes, uh, it, it is overdue, and yes, it should have happened a long time ago. I think the reason why it hasn't happened is due to the stigma that is attached to mental health or mental illness in our society and, and in the legal profession. And I think the effect of stigma is that people are, are quite frankly, afraid to talk about the subject, uh, afraid to, to bring their own experiences to the front, and afraid because they fear that, that if they disclose their mental health challenges, that they will be seen to be unable to do the job of a lawyer, seen to uh, unable to withstand the stress of, of lawyering, will not get good work in their law firm, will not get promoted, will be regarded as, as unreliable and, and uh, won't, won't advance in the profession. And I think the, the key thing, or one of the key things I think that is happening now is that people are starting to talk about mental health in the profession. And, and by doing so, and by, by some leaders of the profession coming forward and talking about the subject, we are destigmatizing mental illness, and I hope encouraging an open dialogue so that people can get help. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of feel like you're uh, one of the first, I mean, as a leader, you know, in the profession to really open up and talk about it. I mean, there has been other people. We have interviewed Justice Holland uh, as well. But it's so great to see also that you opened up and also um, what, what actually moved you uh, to publish your article and to speak to us today. Like what, what was the... The key factor? I, well, there are a couple of things. Um, one is, as you've said, uh, some leaders of the profession have come forward uh, to share their own experiences. So, for example, 
former Supreme Court of Canada, Judge Clément Gascon, has spoken of his own experiences with mental illness. I was inspired by Orlando da Silva, a former president of the Ontario Bar Association, speaking about his challenges, and a very senior lawyer at the Ministry of the Attorney General, Beth Beatty, uh, has spoken about her challenges. What got me speaking about it initially was back in 19, or 2021, when Beth Beatty and the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario, Teresa Donnelly, sponsored a mental health summit in, in Ontario. Uh, for the Law Society, by the Law Society. And I was asked whether I would speak at the summit and do kind of an introductory uh, remarks to welcome everyone. And what I said when I was asked to do that was I, I wanted to think about it for a while because I knew that if I was going to speak at an event like that, I needed to speak about my mother's own challenges with, with uh, bipolar illness. And I, I did speak that year at the summit in 2021 about my mother's experiences and our family's experiences with our mother's mental health, um, a, a mental illness that was with her essentially all her life from the time I was a young child until she died many, many years later. So that that prompted me to start speaking about, about mental illness and and the my paper in 2022 in, entitled the litigator in mental health was kind of a second step in, in the same direction uh, all with a view to getting the discussion going and and out in the open and i feel like uh, what you say in your in your article kind of also links to uh, what the, the findings in the report because when we were talking with dr cardi last uh, last week um uh, she said that one of the findings is that the culture uh, in the legal profession is a lot a lot about you know being uh, a gladiator as you say in your article and it's you don't want to show uh, the people you know this this idea that you will be uh, people will judge you or that they will not trust you Um, and you say, so in your article, you mention a gladiator and lawyer. And uh, then, you know, if you Google that, it's not something we usually hear. But then I kind of feel like it goes together. I felt like I, I had already heard that, but probably not. It's just the feeling that we might have sometimes that it's really how we feel, like gladiators. Um, and what well, could you tell us a bit more about uh, the myth of the gladiator, uh, the gladiator litigator? That's how you call it, uh, where it comes from. And um why it's so important that we finally let go of it. Thanks very much. I, 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 um, I might just add a commercial message of my own. And that is, yeah, please do. <laughs> that, that paper is available along with the paper I wrote about my mother's mental health challenges. That's available on the website of the Court of Appeal for Ontario under the section about the court. And then there's a, a section on publication. So that's where your, your listeners can find it if they need to find it. But Let me say that in the paper, I mentioned that the myth of the gladiator litigator is not unique to litigation. It's, it's embedded in the legal profession itself, and it affects all lawyers, whether they're litigators, commercial lawyers, estates and family lawyers, real estate lawyers. Everyone is affected by what I, I see as a destructive and harmful myth that we are invincible, 
that we uh, can suck it up, that we can uh, power through uh, working long days and nights and we never talk about it. We just keep it to ourselves and, and heal our own wounds and rely on ourselves. And I think it, it, it's, it's harmful because it, it creates a model that's, that some lawyers, particularly younger lawyers, feel they have to aspire to. And, and they somehow also feel um, that, that if they don't meet this model, uh, they're less than a good lawyer. And uh, the truth is, and what I try to say in the paper, all of us, uh, even experienced litigators, and I did litigation all my all my career, thirty years of practice. All of us feel nervous and apprehensive about going to court. All of us uh, perspire, our hands shake, our stomachs grumble. Uh, it's a natural feeling, and and it's also it's not healthy to keep it bottled up inside. It's, 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 it's healthy to talk about it and realize that other people are affected by it. I, I think the other thing that, that's terribly destructive about the myth is that it leads people to think that they have to work ridiculous hours. They have to you know, the, ignore the other important things in their lives, like, like family and rest and recreation. And it, it encourages a culture that, that makes us disposed to become workaholics, whether, as I say, whether we're litigators or others. And, and um, you know, workaholism goes along with other isms and other unhealthy uh, habits. And for example, obviously, uh, too much alcohol, which is a significant problem in, in, in our profession as the, as the Université de Sherbrooke's uh, study indicates. So um, I, I, as I say in my paper, I think um, we have to recognize that, that in a sense that mental health is something we all have. It's something we all have to look after our own mental health and, and getting rid of the stigma, talking about it, putting it out in the open is a big step towards that. But also, because I was hearing, I, I mean, I totally agree with what you say, but I also think that, and I'd like to have your views on that. And when we talk about stigma, I feel also it's because we have this idea that we need to keep like our private life. And when you know the fact that you've been so open about your mother's illness, and I feel like this is something that we should all be comfortable with if we are to, to talk about and not be like, oh, I'm talking about my private life. It's just, no, it's not your private, it's, it's part of who you are and it's part of what you're living. So I think it's really great that you, 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 you took a step and you talked about it because sometimes we just keep everything like as if it was like a perfect silos between private life and work life and, and everything, but I don't think it is. I think human, we are very complex. So thank you for, for sharing also that uh, as well. I wanted really to, to highlight that. Well, I was just going to say, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's an easy thing to do, uh, particularly for people affected by mental illness. It is, it is not easy. And that's where I think law firms and others have a responsibility to create an environment in which people are comfortable. Studies have indicated that, that of 
individuals affected by by mental illness, including the legal profession, at least half half of those affected by mental illness do not disclose it out of concerns about their advancement in the career, in in their careers. And and I think ways have to be found in law firms to enable people to to disclose their their health issues and and to have accommodations where where necessary and i'm not proposing a specific form of 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 making that possible but i i think that law firms do have to create a culture in which people talk and they're encouraged to talk and and they're assured that talking is a good thing that will ultimately improve not only their health but the health of the firm as a whole yeah and there's no as you say there's no like solutions for it i think all employees and all firms it's different so they all need to maybe get along talk about it and say so what's the issue and try to find some solution but to destigmatize mental health and make it easier to reach out do you think that for instance regular mandatory mental health checks could help or regular mandatory I don't know something that would be regular or at least that that would be mentioned I don't know if you have any like not like a solution but do you do you see some solutions that could maybe be a first step I um you know I'm not sure that anything mandatory yeah, it's is never the, the way to approach it I think I, I worry that 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 something that's mandatory will will frighten people rather than help them Uh, but I think there are ways in which law firms could develop practices that address one of the number one concerns, and this was an, a concern identified uh, in the University of Sherbrooke study, and that is people need to find a way to disconnect. And the study indicated that one of the, the best methods of improving mental health in law firms was to give people the ability to disconnect and the, the ability, to, ability to take personal ownership of their time. And, and if, if firms were to do that and, and create a system that ensured people had a proper opportunity to refresh themselves, to revive themselves, to get away from the turmoil of work, Uh, that more than anything else would improve mental health. And, and I mean, just take one example. Um, everybody recognizes in the law that there are times when you have to work full out. If you're in the middle of a trial, you have to work full out. If you're doing a commercial closing, you have to work full out. Um, if you're in a, in a family law litigation, you're working full out. But that's not all the time. It's not a life that is endless emergencies. So why not have a rule that unless it's an emergency, you don't make phone calls to people in the firm after six o'clock in the evening. You don't send emails after six o'clock until the next morning. And why not have the same rule on weekends? You know, you don't call your associates on the weekend. You don't send emails to your associates or partners, for that matter, on the weekend unless it's an emergency. And so people can know that they can go home 
at six o'clock at night, spend time with their family. Um, you know, maybe they'll work uh, uh, some of that time, but they don't feel that they have to. And the same with weekends. And the the other thing, and I, I, I noticed um, that uh, Dr. Kadus said this as well in your interview, I think, that let people take holidays. In fact, yeah. in fact, in fact <laughs> mm-hmm. demand that they take holidays. When I started in, in the practice of law, which is longer ago than I want to admit, but when I started the practice, the first thing my boss told me was, George, plan your holidays now because we all take several weeks of holidays in the summertime. And and in those days, you know, you could go to a cottage and nobody could reach you because there was no phone at the cottage. Yeah. <laughs> and people need holidays. They need meaningful holidays. They need a chance to refresh, relax, enjoy the people they care about and not have to worry about, about work. And, and that it should not be that hard. Instead, we have young lawyers boasting that they haven't taken a holiday in two years. Yeah, it's kind of pride and yeah. Yeah, or they boast they don't have a life. Well, what kind of life is not having a life? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. It's so, so true. Yeah. So I, I really feel strongly that it firms are not um it has its repercussions forcing people to work or requiring people to work such crazy hours and uh, without breaks. It it leads to burnout. It leads to people leaving the profession, as we've seen time and time again. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry I've gone on too long, Julia, on that, but, but I feel so strongly that this is counterproductive. People are being being uh, expected to achieve the unachievable and the, the results not surprising is is their their mental health is paying the price not at all you haven't been too long at all and i think it's i feel very strong about it too so it's very interesting that you really uh, put some emphasis on that and and do you think that because you know you said at the college you, at the time you, you could disconnect and do you feel that with the covid and i think i'm a, i'm a big fan of remote working But then I also realized the tricky part of this. It's like, oh, I feel like I don't work as I'm at home or I can just open my computer at 7 p.m. So do do you think that it's also something we need to be careful? I mean, yes, it's good because it's easier to kind of to to have this balance between family life and work. But at the same time, your work is at your house. So do you think like how do you see that in the future for for young lawyers maybe um, juggling with that? It's it's a very very interesting question and uh, it's one I've been thinking about a lot. Um, what you know we've obviously been through a dreadful two and a half years with COVID. It's it's what's happened is unimaginable. Uh, but one of the things that have has come out of it, and this is important, I think that. COVID has taken away the stigma of working at home. You know, it, before COVID, it used to be thought that working at home was kind of second-class work. Nobody, people weren't really working. They were putting up their feet and watching, watching television. We know that's not true. We know that people worked really hard at home. And I personally think that, that we will never go back to where we were before COVID when it comes to working at home. Obviously, we're going through a period now 
that businesses and employees are adjusting. But my guess is that we will always continue to have some work in the office for lawyers and some work at home, and it will be a matter of negotiation and discussion about what works. But you're absolutely right. The other side effect of this is that the the boundaries between work and home have ceased to exist. You know, work's home and home's work. And and uh, it's it's absolutely true that people are, you know, who, who used to maybe be able to leave the office and leave the work behind, now it's it's always there. Mm-hmm. But but well, me too. <laughs> but but, but um, now what what I think we're part of the reason I suggest we need to start setting some boundaries. We need to have some some time out periods where we say, okay, um, you know, after six o'clock or pick a time. After that time, you don't get disturbed unless it's an emergency. And I and when I mean emergency, I don't mean, you know, something that, that can't, I mean, something that cannot possibly wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a, ch- what a culture change that would be. When I, well, just to go back to when I started out practicing, it was considered rude to phone somebody, to phone somebody in the evening. Oh, yeah. So it, it was, unless it was your, your parent, your mother, or your father. Or, <laughs> but for, a, for an employer to phone an employee uh, was considered rude. Same with the weekends. Suppose we went back to that, you know, say, don't phone. It's their time. It's private time. I, I think that that kind of culture change is, is feasible and possible, and it would be a huge step in the right direction. And, and what would you say to the, the senior ones who might say, well, you know, when I was, okay, compared to you, they would say, when I was younger, I had to do that. You know, I had to, to work my, my ass off, sorry for, I had to work very hard. Uh, so, you know, it's normal that the younger needs to do it as well, because that's, that's what you have to do. It's emotional croix, I would say in French. But so what do you answer to that? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd say, you know, a couple of things. People, people don't go into law if they're afraid of work. You know, it's a, pro- a profession in which you have to work. And as I said earlier, you are expected to work in emergencies. And I would include a trial in that. You know, in a trial, you often you're in court all day. You spend the time before court and after court getting ready for the next day. Um, so that sure, that's that's part of what it is to be a lawyer. But I don't think it's part of the I don't wouldn't want to belong to a profession that said, Well, you have to keep working even outside emergencies because I did it. Um, maybe you did it because that was the culture at the time. But but let's let's talk about changing the culture. And um, you know, I think I you haven't asked me this, but I think the the model of law firms based on billable hours is a model that encourages uh, workaholicism or workaholism. Um, it's like And, you know, it's like, think of the mouse on the wheel. If you give the, the mouse a piece of cheese uh, every 15 minutes, the mouse keeps on running until it's exhausted. And, and the billable hour system that rewards hours, no matter how productive or unproductive they are, I think is ultimately a flawed model. And it, it gives no consideration to the quality 
of those hours. And if speaking as a, if I were a client, I wouldn't want to be billed whatever it is per hour for somebody working at two o'clock in the morning uh, who's exhausted, isn't exercising very good judgment, and uh, is just thinking about when they can finally get to bed. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Like quantity over quality a bit. Like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've never thought about that, but no, definitely. And so you, you kind of touch a little bit some some um, recommendations, not recommendations, but kind of that you make also in your in your article. But uh, the one that I really liked, and as a as a young lawyer myself, as a woman, this get serious about mentoring. I really liked it because I think with me, I know that for me, it's very important to have like a good mentor. And I know to a lot of my friends also, it's very important, but I just like to hear you a little bit more about this one because I feel it's, it's very, um, it's very fresh and it's very, uh, I, I like, it. I find it very important for us and for our younger listeners as well. And for the uh, senior one also, because I think it, like for everybody, it's very interesting. So if you'd like to talk a bit about this, I like, I'd like that. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, It is a very important subject. I can tell you that as a judge, uh, when I was sitting as a judge, it was often a subject of discussion amongst the judges. And I think the predominant feeling uh, was that that somehow we're losing our tradition of mentoring in the, in the profession. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is, you know, mentoring takes time. It takes, it takes time, often time, just getting to know someone, uh, sitting around over a cup of coffee or a meal uh, and talking, or, or doing things, you know, going for a walk together with another lawyer and just chat, chatting. Um, and, and time in this regime that says the billable hour is rewarded, there's a tendency to say, well, uh, because I can't charge for this work, I'm not going to do it. I, I know that that, you know, no lawyer would say that openly or think that that's a good idea. But the reality is, um, again, I hate to talk about when I was a young lawyer, but, you know, people took juniors to court just because it was the thing you did. It was the thing that more senior lawyers did. They took them along just to watch. They might be given a small job like taking notes, but they somewhere where they wouldn't do any harm, but, but at least had a chance to watch how lawyers behaved, how judges behaved. And, and so they could learn, um, you know, what lawyers do. The other, you know, it's a conundrum. I'm not sure how we solve it, but, but the tendency to remote operation also impacts mentoring. Yeah. You know, we tend to do remote things and say it starts at 10, it finishes at 11, Everybody hangs up, and that's the end of the discussion. And, and some of the best mentoring that I ever received was just sitting in another lawyer's office, talking to them or watching how they dealt with clients or witnesses. Uh, and those things are hard to do on Zoom or over the phone. I, I, I have one last thought about mentoring. I have lots of thoughts about mentoring, but let me just, let me just share one. Um, In fact, I just had coffee uh, this morning for real with a, with a younger lawyer, and we were talking about about mentoring. And I said, you know, um, I I'm not sure that it's helpful to say I need a mentor, as in one to one mentor. I think 
in the course of a lawyer's career, they may have many mentors in the sense of people who, to whom they look for advice, uh, people they can watch, study, learn from. Um, and, and I don't think mentoring needs to be a one-on-one -on -one relationship. I think part of the job of senior members of the profession is to help any junior member of the profession who asks them for help. And, and I, think, I think we need to create an environment in which newer members of the profession should feel comfortable in approaching more senior and more experienced members of the profession and say, you know, do you think we could have a cup of coffee? I'd like to talk about my career. Or I've got a, a trial coming up. I wonder if you could give me a little bit of advice. I don't know a single lawyer who wouldn't be happy to respond to that kind of approach. So that's a, just a thought. That's a very important thought. And, and I totally agree with it. And I think that's one of the key solution also. And also it's the feeling of being together, you know, and, um, and so having colleagues and collegiality, which I, I think is also very important as judges. So thank you for sharing a bit of that. And I also wanted to know, like, did you ever, did you have any mentors at this moment or did you have any mentors during your practice or role models that you'd like to share? Well, I, w I would say definitely. Um, you know, I was fortunate. I, I started out in a, in a small, small law firm, a small litigation firm. There were perhaps eight or 10 lawyers in that, in that firm at any given point doing litigation. And um, they routinely took me to court. They routinely took me to bar events, introduced me to other lawyers, introduced me to judges, uh, you know, demonstrated by their own behavior how litigators work, how they treat one another, uh, how they how they behave in court. Um, and it just so happens this month, uh, Ian Benny uh, wrote an article in the Advocates Journal about that firm, and and uh, he and a number of other litigators were. Were, were mentors for me, but we never used the word mentor. I didn't hear the word. I didn't hear the word mentor until about 15 years ago. They just thought of themselves as lawyers doing what lawyers do, bringing, bringing on the mem younger members of the profession because they cared about the profession and cared about the people they work, worked with. Um, and so I did. And, and, and uh, to be honest, I, and when I became a judge, I had mentors too. You know, we were given, uh, when I was first appointed to the Superior Court, I was told that, that I would be shadowing another judge. And uh, she took me to court. Uh, we talked in her office afterwards about what had happened. I watched how she behaved in court. And, and that lasted for Only a few weeks because judges don't go into other judges' courtrooms <laughs> once they're judges. But I had the chance as a, as a rookie to watch her. And I watched other judges, and, you know, over the years and got a sense. So I think we all need role models. You know, nobody, nobody joins the profession of law uh, with, with a, a depth of wisdom and experience. We need that and we need to understand it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I will also take the time maybe to say, uh, because I know that the Canadian Bar Association has a mentorship program. So, uh, and I think it's very great uh, as well. So maybe I would encourage people to look this up because I really do believe in mentorship as well. It really did help me. And also to, yeah, to, to hear about other people's career and, you know, anxiety that you might have as a lawyer, it really helps out. So, uh, so thank you very much. And any other good practices that you'd like to share here that you, that I, you haven't mentioned or that you have seen in your career or that you've heard of uh, that you'd like to share in this podcast? Well, let me go just briefly uh, back to, to um, the University of Sherbrooke study. And, and one, of the, one of the things it talked about, in addition to creating boundaries, is the importance of giving lawyers a sense of personal control and the ability to set boundaries. And I think that's that's a big part of mental wellness is the ability to set one's own boundaries. And, and I think it, I've said time and again when I speak to to lawyers um, that, that we, we do have a personal agency or ability to take control of our own lives. And, and I think taking control of our own lives means making time for ourselves and for our families and for the other important things that are, that are necessary to nourish our, our mental wellness. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't, mental illness is an illness, and, and, but well, mental wellness is something we all have. And, and we, we do have the agency and ability to take control of our mental wellness. And, and I, I urge lawyers, all lawyers, to think about that and to, to make time for themselves and, and those people and things that are important to them. Thank you. And I would have one last question. And um Because, you know, as a, so you, you were a lawyer, now you're a judge, um, and I feel like, and you're a public figure. I mean, it can be challenging in different levels. It can be, it can bring another level of anxiety, of stress as being a judge. I believe so. I mean, I have no idea, but that's what I believe when I read <laughs> decisions, everything. I'm like, wow, I'm very impressed. So, and I'd like to know, do you feel like that the mental health challenges uh, are different or they evolve or they are different? They have different angles or they have a different, uh, yeah just different in the career, throughout your career, that you, you feel like you need to be more careful at some point when you're a young lawyer versus when now you're a well-seasoned uh, judge? Um, and do you have any advice that you'd like to give uh, to prospective judges, but also to a younger lawyer in terms of taking care of your mental wellness at the point where you are in your life? Because also the report, what I found very interesting was that there is a difference between young lawyers versus senior ones, because we don't, we live things differently we have different um yeah we have we're in different places in our lives and everything so i'd like yeah to hear you a bit as a judge do you do you feel like there were new challenges that you didn't have before i think the 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 answer is very definitely yes there are new challenges in being a judge it's a very satisfying career it, it brings a sense of doing something that is publicly worthwhile and publicly important Um, but it's, it's, it's also very challenging in a number of respects. One is um, the work is, is substantial. I, I've often said I worked very hard as a lawyer, but I never worked 
as hard as I did when I became a judge. Uh, the, the work is constant. It's interesting, but it's very challenging and judges work very hard. I, I would say there is also in many respects, enormous pressure. There's, there's enormous pressure to get it right. Uh, get it right for the, for the parties, uh, reach the right, just and fair result. And, and sometimes, it, 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 many times, it, doesn't, it does not come easily. Uh, it takes a great deal of, of, of work and a great deal of analysis and a great deal of, of, of caring and, and empathy. Um, and so there is, there is pressure to get it right. There are time pressures. There's a heavy workload in, in, in many jurisdictions. It's, it's a daily uh, in new cases every single day, sometimes multiple new cases every day. And, and dealing with those, disposing of those, writing reasons, giving reasons can be sometimes an overwhelming task. And, and, and just like lawyers have to learn skills about how to deal efficiently with their work. So judges have to learn how to deal efficiently with it, their work. And it comes with challenges. It comes with stresses. And judges are no different uh, from lawyers when it comes to, to the impact of stress and, 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 and workload and, and those sorts of pressures. And that brings me to, I said it was my last question, but now that you said that, it makes me think of something else that I read in your article, which I never heard before, was the growth mindset. And I'd like you if to maybe to, to share a bit what it is exactly. Um, I have to say, I, I don't remember saying that in the article. <laughs> it's, so it's, uh, when you say you, you talk about a growth, uh, a growth mindset, views, intelligence, and talent as abilities to be cultivated through effort and practice, learning from mistakes and sticking to it when it is not going well. By contrast, the gladiator litigator sees every success or failure in litigation as a measure of self-growth. And I find it very interesting, you know, this, uh, this difference between how you, the mindset that you should have um, when, when you're a lawyer. Yeah, thanks, thanks for refreshing me now. I do. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, it's not easy. I pick some stuff in your articles. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's okay. Um, yeah, I think it's true that, you know, in the, in the, in the litigation business, um, the big highs and big lows, uh, you know, high that high when you win and, and a big low when you lose after you've invested all that, all that time in the case. And, um, or you go, you know, you win, you win a trial, huge celebration, and you go in front of the court of appeal for Ontario <laughs> and you lose And, and, and you're despondent and discouraged and upset. I had, I guess, and maybe it was just because it happened over time, I, I had the ability to move on. I think you have to develop an ability to move on and, and realize that, you know, celebrate the win, sure, but know as well that you're going to have losses too and, and realize that you can lose cases I mean, I used to say, you know, I've won some cases that I didn't deserve to win and I've lost some cases that I did deserve to win. But you have to, you know, not, not realize, sure, celebrate your wins, feel sorry about your losses, but, but move on. And, and also 
as you pointed out, or I guess as I pointed out, you know, learn learn from your experiences. Think about, you know, what what worked in that in that case and what didn't work. Um, what 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 is the takeaway, no matter what happened? And I think if you do that, it, it ultimately creates a more healthy approach to your practice, because there's always going to be losses. Um, and anyway, that that that's the way I'd be thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, thank you. But I think that's also the idea because you were talking about you as a judge. You know, the pressure. You want to get it right. You want to make sure because for the parties, but also it's a decision. You know, people will read you. But I think at some point, also as for lawyers, for judges, it's it's hard to do. But to detach yourself, you know, to to move on and to be like, yeah, I did the best I could. And if it didn't work, it didn't work out. But you know, be nice to yourself, <laughs> like you you want to people to be like you are nice with others. I think it's something like that. But yeah, so I think that, I don't know if there's something I didn't ask you that you would like me to ask you, um, but otherwise it was very nice to have you on this podcast. Thank you. I think I think uh, we've covered uh, just about everything that I wanted to talk about. And uh, my, my papers are there for those who are interested in pursuing it, but I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with you, Julia, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, uh, Chief Justice Thrathi. I'm, I'm so sorry. For a French speaker, it's very difficult. So I'll say that again. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chief Justice Strathy. Uh, and uh, well, yeah. you got it absolutely right, but I'm not Chief Justice. <laughs> I'm not Chief Justice anymore. So, so uh, <laughs> oh, okay, so Chief Justice. <laughs> or, or Mr. Strathy is fine, but whatever. You got the pronunciation. Parfait. But thank you very much. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and share it with friends and colleagues and look out for them. Also, look out for mental health episodes of The Every Lawyer in the weeks and months ahead. Hello, I'm Steve Bujo, president of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system, protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President, Episode 1, is out now.